Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 1, verses 1 and 17. This is the word of God. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of, to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word this morning, we pray that you would just indwell us, that you would empty us, fill us with your spirit, that we would just hear your words, that we would learn from your words, uh, and that we would just walk away moved towards you to see your glory in your son, the Messiah that you sent. Amen. A boy goes through the marketplace looking for something. He's running, knowing that if he doesn't find this item, he's going to be in really big trouble. He looks high, he looks low, but no matter where he looks, he can't find what he's looking for until he stops and sees exactly what he needs. It's in the park behind the church. There's a hilt sticking out of a stone back there. The boy needs that sword. He's a squire for a knight and forgot to pack a sword for the competition the knight is taking a part in. He runs over to the sword, he grabs it. The sword comes smoothly to his hand, and he runs back to the arena where the competition is taking place. He gives the sword to his knight right as the competition is starting. Before the knight can use the sword, though, the other participant stops him and yells at the knight and says, what are you doing? You can't use that. Judge, come here. The judge comes running to look at the sword and sees an inscription on the blade. Whoso pulleth out this sword of this stone and anvil is rightwise king born of all England. In shock, everyone asks the knight where he got this sword. And in fear, the knight points to his little squire. The squire walks with now a huge crowd behind him to the park behind the church and puts the sword back in the stone. Not believing what they're seeing, many men attempt to pull the sword out to no avail. When the men are tired and exhausted, they ask the boy to pull it again, thinking there's no way he will do it. He pulls out the sword one more time and becomes what? King Arthur. I'm sure many of us have heard of these stories, the sword and the stone and others, a legend of somebody to come who is going to be an amazing savior. This person is someone everybody is looking for, looking forward to, knowing that they're coming, like King Arthur. He's going to come and he's going to conquer. He's going to be the best king England has ever seen. We see many more of these in pop culture. How many heroes do we have? A hero that may have some problems, but they overcome these small problems to become the person, the savior, the Messiah that you've been looking for. Today, we're going to be introduced to the real Messiah. Not a fake one. 
Not somebody with a flawed care who has to rise to an occasion, but somebody who was born perfect. Instead of rising to an occasion, he had to humble himself, become a man, and die on a cross. The exact opposite. There are many signs that point to this Messiah, as we're going to see, and we're going to look at some of them today. Son of David, son of Abraham. Now, before we dive into the text, and it is a genealogy, so I'll warn you now, when we get there, do not fall asleep. Stay awake now. Be prepared for it. I'm going to do a little introduction to Matthew. When I like looking at books, or whenever I teach a book, I always like to find out how long will it take me to read or listen to this book. So Matthew, if you want to know, takes about two and a half hours to read. If you're a listener like me and you like to play it in the car when you're working out or whenever it may be, again, a little over than two and a half hours, all right? Uh, it's not a short read, but it's not extremely long. So I will encourage you, read this book. You've got a year. I think in the next year we can read the book. So two and a half hours. There's 28 chapters in Matthew, uh, 28 great chapters, and it's one of the synoptic gospels. So that's a big word, synoptic gospels. There's three synoptic gospels. And I'm sure some of you are looking at me right now going, no, there's actually four gospels. Yeah, there are four gospels. But three of them are very similar. Three of them come from what you would think the same text or the same tradition. And that's why they're synoptic. They're very similar in the way they're written. They're very interesting from a literary perspective. So, so give me a couple seconds here to go down a rabbit trail. Matthew and Luke and Mark all share very similar information. They can be written in a different order, which we'll talk about in a second, but they also have these same ideas and traditions, but in a slightly different order. So we don't know exactly which one came first. There's some traditions that say Mark was written first and Matthew and Luke were written later. Matthew and Luke could have written based on Mark in this other source called Q, Quell, which is basically German, um, just to say that that's a source. They could have been written in a way that there's also some other documentation that pulled them in. But there's this idea that the synoptic gospels all came or derived from the same source. As those of us who believe in the gospel being God's inherent word, we know they all came from the same source, right? We know that all of these was God speaking through man. We don't need to question this, but it is a very interesting argument or literary way to look at it. But why does it really matter? Why does it matter whether Matthew was written first, Mark was written first, Luke was written first? Does it, does it matter at all? Well, there are a couple things. One, Luke 1.1 1, 1 says... Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So let's stop there. That's Luke 1. 1. If we take a couple things away from it, you look at Luke and there's many narratives. Think of this. There's hundreds of documents out there. Today we have a newspaper, right? How many newspapers do we have in Colorado alone? Hundreds. How many newspapers do we have in the world? Thousands. People at this time in the first century also had news agencies. They also had people writing letters. They weren't some backwards people who had no literacy. They were very literate people. They wrote about a lot of different things. 
So it's very interesting to see that Luke says there's many things written on this gospel. There's many things written about Jesus, but I'm trying to put them together. So we have this Luke, thousands of things written on Jesus. I'm trying to pull them together. Right? Then we look at the priority. Was Mark written first? Was Matthew written first? Was Luke written first? What does it matter? Well, it helps us understand the timeline, right? We want to know that our Bible was written at a time around Jesus, right? We don't want to say that this Bible is 400, 500, 600, 700 years later and somebody made it up, right? We want it to be a contemporary of Christ. So it's important from that perspective. If I understand which one was written first, I can say, hey, I think I know when all of them were written and it gives us a better idea uh, of when and, and why these are true. Are these really eyewitness accounts? If they're written from the same source and coming from different things, could they be the same book or the same type of thing? And who took the time to arrange these materials and why? These are the questions we can answer with this. It's actually very interesting. If you want to study sometime, I would love to talk more about this. Because understanding how the Gospels were written and why it's so unique is very cool. But I'm not going to spend any more time on this. I'm, gonna spend, I'm just going to read a quote from Leon Morris. It appears that many writers are all too ready to ignore Lute's expressive statement that many had written before him. In the first century, literacy was reasonably widespread. The New Testament gives ample evidence that writing was congenial to the early Christians. Why should we limit the accounts of Jesus' teaching to the four Gospels plus three hypothetical sources? It seems much more likely that many did write about Jesus, but in the most, that in time, most of their works perished. When the four Gospels were produced, they evidently were so superior to other writings about Jesus in circulation that in time they drove the rest out of business. Let me give you an example. Blackberry. Have you guys ever heard of Blackberry. You remember the Blackberry, the little phone with the, the full keyboard at the bottom that I couldn't use because my thumbs are too big? It was a really cool device. It came out. It was a great device. But guess what? An iPhone comes out. Google Pixels come out. And what happens to the Blackberry? Disappears. Lots of phones, lots of smartphones, this happened because there's a superior product. When we think about Gospels and how they were written, these are the most superior product you can possibly get that has been saved for us. The Lord, God, in his wisdom, saved us these exact words so that we would know Christ the best we can. Everything else perished. Everything else wasn't as good because we can learn everything we need in these Gospels. Now, who wrote the book of Matthew? This may seem pretty simple, right? It's the book of Matthew, the name on the book, right? It's real simple. Well, it's not quite that simple. Here's the problem. Nobody actually attributed Matthew to Matthew until Irenaeus. Now, Irenaeus came in about 150 AD, all right? And now that's still pretty early, but since no one attributed it to him, nobody really understands who wrote it. Now, Irenaeus says, of course, it's tradition that Matthew wrote this book, but we don't actually know. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I believe Matthew wrote the book because it's that simple and it's, it survived that long, but we don't really know who wrote the book. Now, when was it written? This is an, this is an interesting one. In 110 AD, Ignatius of Antioch quotes this gospel in a letter 
as a gospel. So 110 AD, let me just paint a picture for you. Alexander the Great, we know who Alexander the Great is, right? The first actual written history about Alexander the Great showed up 400 years after his exploits. 400 years. Now, nobody at all questions that Alexander the Great lived, that he conquered, that he was one of the best kings, or any of the stories around him. It's all taken as absolute fact. We have, in Matthew, a gospel that less than 80 years after Christ was on earth is considered exactly correct, a gospel. Think of that. The Lord, in his wisdom, gave us these books so that we know Christ. So it was probably written somewhere around 50 to 60 AD. It was probably sent to all the churches about that time. And again, by 110 AD, everybody accepted it as gospel. In order for me to put something in the letter, you have to understand it and I have to understand it or we're not going to get the point, right? So it's put in a letter at around 110 AD, which gives us the writing as somewhere between 50 and 90. What are the themes of Matthew? Well, at the end of the Old Testament, we have a break, about a 400-year break from when we have the last prophet to where we have the writing of our Gospels. Regardless of which one comes first, Matthew makes sense in our canon to come first in the New Testament. It is a bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Matthew was written with the Jewish person in mind to begin with. It writes to say, hey, the son of David is coming. He's come. He's here. He's inviting you into his family. And on top of that, sinners, Gentiles, you're welcome too. So Matthew is the great point at which we get the New Testament coming in. Some other themes we see here. Jesus totally fulfills the law. Jesus does not lack in anything. In the other Gospels, we see that Jesus is the Messiah, but Matthew takes special precedent to make sure that we know that Jesus absolutely fills the law in every way. He puts it in ways that Jews would understand. He puts it in a way that if you understand the law and have followed it your whole life, it makes it very simple. Matthew is also the only gospel that talks about the church. I didn't actually know this. I learned this when I was studying for this. Matthew is the only gospel that actually uses the word church in the coming of the church. It actually uses it three times. It doesn't sound like a lot, but it's a lot when you see three other gospels with no use of the word church. Matthew introduces to us this idea that God is pulling together people for himself. Not just the Jews, but the Jews and the Gentiles and a great family. The last we have in Matthew is the kingdom. There is a kingdom coming. There's a kingdom that's not here yet. The kingdom that's coming is a spiritual kingdom, one where you will be saved from your sins. The kingdom that's not here yet is a physical kingdom and introduces the kingdom. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles again. Matthew 1, 1. 
The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. Now you would think with the first verse this would be relatively straightforward, but it's actually not. It's very interesting the way this book begins. The book, so this tome, this great text of the genealogy. Genealogy is actually a bad word here. It should be Genesis. It should be beginning. It could be history. So basically we're talking about this book or sacred tome of the history or Genesis of Jesus Christ. This verse isn't introducing the genealogy we have in the next 16 verses. This verse is introducing to us the entire book and who we're talking about. So think of it this way. The scripture or the absolute knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, who is this Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is a title that we've given him. It should be Jesus Messiah, Jesus Anointed. But this book of Jesus, who is the Messiah? The first verse here, the book or the tome of the Genesis of Jesus the Messiah. So Matthew is starting off with a bang. This is the book that you need to know about Jesus Christ and who he is. Now let's just spend another minute on Jesus Christ here. It's interesting to me that Christ is a term that Paul actually represents to us. The Gospels don't use Christ very often except as a title. The Christ, the Messiah. It's not used as his personal name. Many times today we will say Christ and we mean Jesus. It's more of a title in the Gospels. The Gospels actually use the name Jesus. Instead of Jesus Christ, they just use Jesus as a personal. So most likely those that knew Jesus best didn't go around calling him Jesus the Messiah. They went around and called him Jesus just as a friend. Now why do I bring this up? Because it's amazing to see that Jesus this person that we love and adore and have not seen, brought people in and had him call him by name, right? How many of us go around and call someone Mr. This, Mr. That, and we're never actually gonna get to use their first name? Well, lots, right? Because you kind of keep people off. Whereas Jesus brought his disciples in and people around him and actually wanted them to call him Jesus. So the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, now let's find out who he is. The son of David, if you were here last week, Rick pointed forward to us very well that we have all of these kings, but they're looking forward to somebody greater than them. They're looking forward to somebody that will truly be the king that is needed. Now, why is Jesus called the son of David? Why are we starting with that? Because if I'm starting with my resume, I need to make sure you know what my credentials are. And this is one of the most important ones. The Messiah had to be the son of David. Now remember, we're 400 years after the last prophet. 400 years. Don't you think the Jewish people are looking for the Messiah? Don't you think everywhere they turn, they're going, oh, that guy is the Messiah. Let me give you an example. In today's world, how often have we heard Jesus is coming back? Right? We heard it in 2000. We heard it a couple years later. We've heard it since then. How many books have been written? Jesus is coming back. We still have a society that's looking for Jesus. But think of the Jewish people. The Messiah is coming for us. They're looking for him everywhere. 
So when Matthew introduces Jesus as the son of David, he's saying, guys, the son of David, the one we've been looking for is here. The Davidic promise that we got in 2 Samuel 7 is coming true. The real king is coming to sit on the throne, son of David. Then he goes even farther, son of Abraham. Do you guys remember the Abrahamic covenant as well? Right, that the whole world would be blessed through your line? We have it right here. This has been fulfilled. Jesus has come. He is the son of David, fulfilling the Davidic covenant. He's the son of Abraham, fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. Now take a second and let that sink in. This is the book of the beginning or the history of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You look at it and you go, that's a very simple verse. But think of the profound nature that we have here. Son of David, the one we've been waiting for, the real king, son of Abraham, the one who's going to come save the world and bless the world is in front of us. What a big start to this book. I love it. Genealogy. Now, this is the part where I want you to stay awake for. I'm going to read a lot of names, and when I get them wrong, you can laugh, just not too loud. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was father, the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah. Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, father of Matan. Matan, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Whew. A lot of names. A lot of names. We made it through, though. Now, let's deal with a couple problems uh, with this first, and then let's dive into the meat of this genealogy. First off, there's two genealogies that we see in Scripture. We see one here for Jesus, and we see one in Luke 3. Now, these two genealogies are different. We start with Abraham and go to Jesus in Matthew. In Luke, we start with Jesus and work our way all the way back to Adam. So slightly different order. 
We also have another slight problem. The names are different, right? Joseph has two different fathers if you look at two of them. And no, he doesn't have two different fathers. That was not happening then. He looked at two different perspectives. So there's a couple different ways we can explain this. One is the explanation that in Matthew here, we have what's called a royal succession, right? If I want to become king, I need to prove that I have the blood in my body that I can become that king, all right? I need to prove that I am part of a royal descent. So in order to do that, I look at the royal succession. I walk through all the kings of the past and I work down to who I am. The second piece of having to do this is what's called a linear descent or your lineage, actual lineage of who did the blood flow through, which could be a different set of people. Basically, one is all the kings and why I should be king. And the other one is here's my actual family tree and how it, you know, how it works down. And here's how the bloodline goes. Most likely, what we see in Luke is the bloodline of Christ. What we see in Matthew is the royal succession of Christ. So who is king after king after king here? Now, some argue that Luke is Mary's lineage versus Matthew being Christ's lineage. The only problem with that is that Luke actually doesn't say this is Mary's lineage. It actually says it's Joseph's. So you've got all kinds of theories that come up that maybe Joseph... Uh, his parents, maybe his dad actually died and his mom had a kinsman redeemer. So he actually was born to someone else but carried on the other man's line. You can go down all kinds of things to make this work. But I think the most important thing here is that we have two different perspectives of Jesus. One is that Jesus is the king and that is what Matthew is establishing. In that first verse, son of David, son of Abraham, he's now establishing why he is the son of David, son of Abraham. And in Luke, we establish that he has the right blood for the job. Okay? So when we look at these, that's what I want you to remember. There's also missing people in this. There's four or five missing names when you look at it. You go back to Chronicles and say, hey, there's a couple kings in there. Where did those guys go? They just disappear. How come you get to leave them out? Well, the word used here for father doesn't actually mean father. It means descendant of. Right? So when we say Jesus was a descendant of this person, there could have been three, four, five generations in between here. Right? So it's actually not that big a deal. Instead of father of, think of descendant of, and everything works out just fine. Now, why did he skip some people and do it this way? Because we want to keep the 14s intact. Right? So there's 14 names up to David, 14 names from David to the deportation, and then 13 names from the deportation to there. And I said three 14s, and I meant three 14s. Most people will count Jeconiah twice, and we'll talk about why in a minute, but some will count David twice. But there's three 14s. Now, why three 14s? What does it matter? Why are we talking about it? Well, a lot of people think Matthew wrote this, so it's easy to remember, right? 14, 14, 14, I can remember that. Why is that easy to remember? Because there's this thing called... Geometria, and I'm probably saying that wrong, but I'll say it in name. Geometria, where it's real simple. A name is calculated its numerical value. So think of it this way. A is 1, B is 2, C is 3, so on and so forth. You calculate the number. So David, DVD, in, in Hebrew, 
equals 14. So 14 is the royal number. So if we have three portions of 14, in the Hebrew you would look and say that's 14 three times, and typically that would mean a superlative, right? So Christ is 14, 14, 14. He's super king, right? Think of it this way. God is considered holy, 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 right? You say things twice, people get it. You say it three times and they go, wow, that's really holy. Christ here, 14, 14, 14, is the super king that you've been waiting for. Now, there are some other ideas here that maybe it was seven, 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 and you get into different arguments by that. It's going to take too long to explain that, and I don't even know if I understand it completely, so I like the 14s because that's nice and easy to explain. Now, when we say there's 13 at the end, we got to talk about Jeconiah and the problem we have with Jeconiah. So Jeconiah was told, neither he nor none of his offsprings shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. That's Jeremiah 22. So Jeconiah essentially ends the Davidic line of succession. That at this point, you are so bad that you will no longer sit on the throne. But yet we have Christ sitting on the throne. How does that work? Well, many would say there's Jeconiah pre-deportation, and then there's Jeconiah who was in Babylon who got a second chance, right? And in that second chance, he had children that were then become part of the line. All right, that when he said no offspring would sit, they literally meant his children won't sit on the throne, but his offspring will still be there. And that's what many say, that Jeconiah, you count him as the last king before the deportation, as the guy who ruined everything, but you also count him as a man who got a second chance in Babylon uh, and is coming on. So that's how we get our three sets of 14. Now let's talk a little bit of why it's important to start with the genealogy. So... Many of us during reading this, I myself also get lost in the names. I don't know who half these people are. And when I do know who they are, I think that's a bad guy. That's not a good guy. Why do these really matter? Why are they putting it here? Well, it's very important, especially in Israel and Jewish culture, that I establish who I am. All right? I establish what tribe I'm from. I establish my past. Most likely... Before the fall of Jerusalem, there were these public registers that you could go, kind of like, you know, some of the online sites. You give in your blood, I get my DNA, and I get to see who my family tree is. Similar types of things. They had public registers that could trace you back all the way to Abraham. How cool is that? Right? I go in, I say, here's my name, here's my last name. Trace me back. Tell me who I have. And they could give me my last 15, 20, 30, 40 relatives to trace me all the way back. So it's important, since it's available, that we understand that Christ is the son of David. He is part of this line. And since the records were available at the time, it's very easy to do. So Matthew says, I'm going to make sure you know this is really Jesus, son of David, and here's how we set it up. It's also a great bridge from the Old Testament. We have all of these kings, we have all of these things happen in the Old Testament, then it's quiet. Well, how do we reintroduce the New Testament in Jesus? It's very easy, a genealogy. Here's what happened in between. Here's the people who were there in between. Here's what you missed, right? I always like Star Wars, the beginning, right? There's always that long verbiage that you sit there and go, holy cow, 
Who would have created a movie with all these words at the beginning I have to read? Just get me to some laser fights, right? Let's skip this. But we have the same type of thing here. I need to catch you up with what's going on. This is what's going on, this is what's happened, and this is where we're entering into the story again. So that's why we have the genealogy. But we also have a couple things that we need to pull out of the text here. One is that Jesus is the long way to king, and he's come to earth to start his rule. Now, a lot of the times we expect messiahs, saviors, kings to come in a certain way, right? If you show up to an award ceremony and you walk the red carpet and I'm in my sweats and I'm wearing my sandals, which my family should laugh at because it looks pretty bad, and I ride up on a bike, are they going to accept me as somebody who should be here? Probably not. Maybe in our society, I don't know, but probably not. Right? I expect you to come up in a tux. I expect you to drive up in your Bentley. I expect you to look the part because you need to be there in order for this to happen. But Jesus didn't look that part. In fact, he came to save Israel from something they didn't even know they need saved from. Imagine this. Your long-awaited king comes and he gives you something so amazing, eternal life. Saved from your sins. And the people go, I don't want this. I literally want to rule. I want to be the guy in charge. I want Jews to be on top of the world. Let's crush Rome. Who cares about the sin stuff? He comes. He is the long way to king. But he's the king and given for what they need, not what they think they need. Let me give you a story. There's a king. He hears about a rebellion going on. This rebellion is huge. And the people are coming together saying, we are going to take down the king and we are going to create a new government. Let's go take it down. So the king, like any good king, puts his army together and goes out to crush this rebellion because we can't have rebellions. As the men are marching there, they see a new city that had been built upriver from where this rebellion was taking place. They see that the people had dammed the water so that the water wasn't going downstream, right? All the water was stuck in this reservoir, and downstream there was no water available. The army, as they're walking by, says, this wasn't right. Let's knock this down before we go. They knock down the dam. They let the water flow again. When they get to the rebellious part of the country, guess what? The people are no longer rebellious. Why? Because they wanted water. They were thirsty. They needed water. But what did they equate that to is I need to overthrow the king. This is my real problem when their real problem was actually just a need of thirst. Jesus, while the people think they need someone to come and reign on this earth, they really need a savior that will come and save them from their sins. That's the true problem. Jesus is truly coming to save us from our sins not to set up something on this earth. What does a true king do? A true king gives the people what they truly need. And that's what we have in Jesus, our long-awaited king. The other idea I want to pull out of this genealogy is the family. Now let me read a quick quote from Spurgeon. A line of kings of mixed character, not one of them perfect, and some are as bad as you can possibly be. Some are left out altogether. 
Sinners who are only fit to be completely forgotten. This shows how little can be made of being born of the will of man or the will of the flesh. In this special line of descent, salvation was not of birth or of blood. What Spurgeon is saying here is very simple. We see a line of kings, and do you know what? A lot of those kings from David to Jeconiah, those were not good guys. In fact, only a couple of them were good guys. Some of them are so bad that they were left out of the genealogy altogether. One of them was so bad that God said, I can't even have David on the throne anymore. When people don't believe, when people throw off God, this is a warning to them. When you throw off God, you're going to be forgotten. That same warning applies to us. If you love the Lord, if you're with him, we'll find out that you're grafted into his genealogy and you fit. But when you throw the Lord off, guess what happens to you? You disappear. Nobody knows who you are. Nobody cares. This is a warning. Take this very seriously. Now, there's also the good part of the genealogy. Luther says, it's as though God intended this genealogy to say, oh, Christ is the kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. In fact, he even puts them in his family tree. Now, what is different than this genealogy than most? There's women. Now, I need to preface this. Within Chronicles, we also have genealogies with women. So this is not unheard of, but what is unheard of is that we have women here who aren't of Jewish descent. We have actual Gentile women. And you'll say, Greg, 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 there's Bathsheba. She was a, a Jewish woman. Well, we'll talk about her in a minute. She's a special case. But we have four women here. Let's talk through them very quickly. Tamar. So if you remember the story of Tamar, Tamar married one of Judah's sons, right? The son was so bad, God put him to death, right? So she gets to marry the next son, and guess what happened to him? He was worse than his brother. He did some unspeakable things to her and the family, so he puts him to death too. And he says, don't worry, I'll come back and give you my third son when it's time. He never comes back. She finds out he's coming to town again. She dresses up as a prostitute, right? He ends up sleeping with her and they have a child. Actually, they have twins, Perez and Tara, right? And she is redeemed by the fact that she did what he was supposed to do, but he never did. But it's a very rough story. We have Rahab. Rahab, who is a professional prostitute in Jericho. But what does she do? She helps the spies so they don't get caught and helps overtake uh, Jericho. Ruth, she's a Moabitess. The Moabites. Do you remember the Moabites? There was Lot and his daughter, and there was, an there was a fruitful relationship there that caused, you know, disgustiness. And the Moabites are from that. The Moabites are from, the, from Lot and his daughters' union together. And it's said in Deuteronomy that Moabites can't be admitted to Israel up to 10 generations. For 10 generations, you're not allowed to come in here. But what happens? Naomi and her family go to Ruth. Ruth marries. Her husband dies. She follows Naomi back. And she's eventually redeemed by Boaz for believing. We have the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. She's the wife of a Hittite. She did not marry an Israelite. She married outside, so she's viewed as an outsider. She married outside, and what happened to her, we know. David takes advantage of her, 
and has a child who dies, but eventually she has the child Solomon. What are the similarities to all these? They're all Gentiles. They're all outside of God's kingdom. They all, for some reason, were pushed out. They're all outcasts. When you think of this society that we're talking about, there's women who are slightly below men. Sorry, women. And then there's women who have some type of sexual sin or others even done to them. It's not even their fault. And they're even lower. They're outcasts in society. Nobody wants to know these people. Right? But they were all brought into the line of Christ through their belief in him. Think about this. Women who were sexually abused in some situations. Women who were the bottom of the bottom, who were forgotten, who were left by the roadside. They were brought in and now not only were they part of David's line, they're now brought into Jesus' line. This should encourage us greatly. All of us out here, sitting here, that say, wow, I don't know if I deserve any of this. Well, guess what? You don't. You don't deserve a single bit of it. But God can bring you in and make you a part of his family. So much so that we are in the lineage of David, the lineage of Jesus, that he would bring in the Gentiles. Do you realize when we accept Christ as our Savior, we are now children of God? We're part of the same genealogy. We may be three or four pages later, but we are still part of this genealogy. You are not just some no-name individual sitting out there. You are loved by God and chosen to be part of his family. You've been grafted in. If this doesn't encourage you, brothers and sisters, I don't know what will. The Lord, the creator of the universe, the one who sent his son to die for us, thinks you special enough that he wants you in his family. You become children of God. What manner of love is this? That we should be called the children of God? This is God's love. That's the manner of love. So let me encourage you. If you feel down today, if you feel despair, if it's been a rough week, maybe a rough month, we have Christmas coming up. Oh man, there's so many things I have to do for Christmas. I gotta get everything together. Oh, this is such a busy time of year. I can't believe all this is going on. What am I going to do with myself? When am I going to have time? Lord, uh, running around in craziness, right? Remember this because of this genealogy. God loves you. God brings you into his family. You are now his child and you are special. Father, we come before you and just thank you. Thank you, Lord, as we look at this genealogy that sometimes we read this and, Lord, we just <laughs> we don't understand. Why is this here? What are all these names? What does it mean? But, Lord, you have it there for a reason. You have it there so that we can understand that you bring us into your family, that you love the sinner, that you are a friend of sinners. You sent your son, the son of David, the son of Abraham, not to condemn, but to bring us into your family. Lord, as we start uh, this great series on Matthew, I pray, Lord, you would open our eyes to your kingdom, to the church, and the love of your son, and the love you have for us. 
In your name I pray. Amen. You are dismissed. Amen.